this is episode 305 of the Real Me and Colon, a movie podcast. On this week's episode, Chase and Joel will take a look at Little Women as well as a couple other surprises. All that and more, the episode starts right now. What is going on, everybody? And welcome to the final regular episode of 2019 of the Real Me and Colin A Movie Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Chase Lee. And if you have decided to take a chance on us as a new you know, film podcast listener and you want to listen to a couple people break down movies or talk about whatever in the film business, I think you hit the right spot. Please don't uh, tune out. I think you're going to really enjoy it. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. You guys are always uh, awesome as usual. Uh, this is episode 305, and we will be going over our final film and discussion before our top 10 list, and that would be Little Women. The new film by Greta Gerwig and has been adapted, I think, 2,700 times, but I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so that will be our main discussion, and we'll have a couple other things uh, outside of that because, unfortunately, there's no movie news or movie trailers to talk about, so it's just going to be all film discussion here. Uh, and you know reviews and breakdowns and everything. But before I throw it over to my co-host, Joseph, uh, if you guys could just uh, please spread this episode around, let people know about it, and let people know that this is your favorite movie podcast to listen to, we would greatly appreciate it. Joseph, this is the final episode of the year. Not really much to talk about because it was the holiday season. Not There wasn't any news or trailers that dropped, so we're going to be you know jumping into Little Women here shortly, and then we'll you know maybe throw some other mini-reviews and stuff, but... Um, just real quick, you know, what, what was, uh, what was this year like for you, you know, leading up to this episode this is our final one before we get into the, uh, top 10 episode. Yeah, it's been a really good year and we'll get into a little bit of how good it was on our top 10 episode, but it was, it was a really, really good year. And of course we're not just coming to the end of the year, we're coming to the end of the decade, which again, I, you know, I, I will, uh, I, I've mentioned on a, on a podcast we've already recorded, uh, <laughs> It's just insane to think about. It's just insane, and um, yeah. So I, I love it. I, I uh, we'll get into this, but I love this movie, and it's um, it's a fitting final. It's a fitting final episode of the year. I think it's a big prestige, you know, drama. Uh, likely going to or hopefully going to get a lot of love at the Oscars. We'll see if that happens. But but yeah. Um, and as Chase was saying, this is going to be a bit of a weird episode because. There wasn't really anything significant that happened. There was a few casting bits that I didn't really feel were inspired enough to talk about. Um, there weren't any trailers except for that thing for uh, the um, Aretha Franklin movie that's coming out next year. Respect, but it was just basically a sizzle reel to hear uh, Jennifer Hudson's voice. <laughs> that's it. So yeah, I'll review the full about. trailer whenever that drops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so there was nothing to talk about with that. So really, I mean, all we have is um, is this movie, so we decided to do a couple of other things. We'll get to those after the review, but... Um, well, first of all, how was your week? How was your you know holiday week? Like, what did you guys do? It was good. Uh, basically, I just kind of stayed in on, on Christmas. I, I mostly watched Monk episodes. Of course <laughs> because, you did. Of course. That's my, that's my, it's my comfort food, man. I got to watch Adrian Monk solve unsolvable crimes, dude. So to, to be fair, I've been doing the same thing with Disney plus, uh, <laughs> if I have any downtime or I'm about to go to bed I'll just flip on some Simpsons episodes and there just continue my journey with it. Right. Right. Which I need to do that. I, I that's one of my goals. This S- some of the year. hardest I've laughed in a while. Right. <laughs> so, 
Um, yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, I've been working a lot. We've been uh, just retail in December, guys, is, is if you've ever worked it, it's it's insane. You know, if you haven't, then you have no concept because it is just lots of incredibly intelligent people uh, who have very, very calm uh, concerns and demands. I'm kidding. It's actually just, I'm sorry to say, a bunch of idiots who want things that are impossible. Welcome back to the confessions of a retail worker. <laughs> exactly. Don't exactly. worry, guys. I worked at a movie theater. It's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, yesterday I just had somebody who did not understand why we could not do an exchange after 30 days um, without a receipt. Just, oh, right, right. Because it's on the receipt. It's literally, it's, it's literally receipt. labeled out. You can't do any yeah. exchanges It's like that. fine print, you know? Literally, mm-hmm. the, the, the computer will not allow us to do it. Like, yeah. It just it will, it will reject it. So somebody, they tried it. It doesn't even do a manager override. We can't, we can't do it. So... Anyway, that's just one example, but that was somebody who was very angry with me at the by the end of that transaction. And at that point, when you know that they're wrong, just, just sit there and take right. it. Just like, mm, I, sure, I just, okay. You know, professional, but I, I'm in my head. I'm like, ha, uh, you know, shows you. But yeah, um, other it basically, it's just been work and just kind of sitting at home, resting, and also preparing for this onslaught of. Mm. <laughs> of this episode, our next one, which is the top ten, which you know is obviously a lot of um, uh, not really cramming because I've, I've watched everything already. Um, I saw my final movie, my final qualifying movie last weekend, which was Hidden Life from Terrence Malick. And um, there's two of them that I uh, unfortunately missed on. I do have one of them sitting over there. I know Joel's just angry they haven't touched it, but compared to last year, right? Oh, I did yeah. pretty well. Right? I yeah, did pretty yeah. well. Last year you were missing several. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, like, I watched um, uh, a couple of streaming service originals. They weren't the same. I was about to say Netflix originals, but one of them was Togo mm. on uh, Disney+, Plus, which is uh, the, the uh, movie with Willem Dafoe about a sled dog. It's based on a true story. It's actually literally the entire point of the story is to kind of remove all of the celebration surrounding Balto in mm. an interesting way. He gets name-dropped in this because it's, it's based on the, uh, the story that surrounded Balto. Uh, it I, like, is actually, I like how Disney is releasing two of these within like three months of each other. Yeah, it's crazy. And um, <laughs> with Call of the Wild, yeah. That one, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. And, and this one was really good. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, really good. Really it looks really good. Uh, it's from the director of that movie, the, uh, Invincible, the Mark Wahlberg football movie from way back. Uh, and he also did his own cinematography for it, which is really <laughs> usually really hard to do. Interesting. But it looks gorgeous. It's really a um, heartwarming uh, adventure tale, and um, Defoe's great, so... Uh, does uh, uses flashback structure, which is in an interesting way, and um, so yeah, really like that. And then <laughs> on Christmas, uh, Christmas, I I spent most of the day watching Monk, and then we went to see Little Women, saw it again that day, and then when we got back, we had family over and we ate and stuff. But to cap off the night, my parents and I were like, you know what, we'll put on a Christmas movie. We didn't go with any of the. Any of the classics, you know, anything like that. We went with this Netflix original with Vanessa Hudgens called The Night Before Christmas. Oh, gee, I wonder <laughs> who else was just talking about it in this household. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't me. <laughs> and you know what? It was adorable. I liked it. It was enjoyable. It was, it's basically the concept is this 14th century night gets transported to the modern day by the, the magic of a witch or a, uh, I think he calls her the old crone, which is mm-hmm. kind of offensive now. That's but what, That's what I call my disease. <laughs> there the, we go. The old crone. 
there it fits um and he basically you know they fall in love very simple it just you know gets a lot of really easy laughs out of this guy who's transported to the future who doesn't who learns very quickly all of our nomenclature by way of one night of television which is completely completely un- unbelievable but um but it was fun you know it's just one of those things where you just you just sit back and you relax and it's a lot of ham and cheese and all of that and it's it's enjoyable so mm-hmm. i like that um and then yeah yesterday was all about writing up my top 10 which i'm going to be using a little bit later on when we record that episode as a reference point you know mm-hmm. to be able to um uh to talk about it but yeah basically that's that's my so week your was, whole day my week, week was of... my my week was mostly rest i had a couple mm-hmm. work shifts but it was mostly rest and it was really nice so yeah I mean, we didn't really watch much. Uh, we finished up Watchmen, finally. Awesome. Um, we did that. Uh, we started U Season 2. I, I, I talked about this show uh, a while back, I think last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's American Psycho television version, basically, but it's, that, that one's a lot of fun. Then we watched uh, Home Alone okay. and The Santa Claus because, obviously. <laughs> Um, and it's just so weird to see Home Alone nowadays because, like, all I see Macaulay in is stuff on the web. Yeah. So, right. like, all he does is just web series now, and then, like, you watch his old movies, and you're like, oh, yeah, he was in movies. <laughs> so you, you just forget. And Because right. we were talking about that when we were seeing the Home Alone is how much royalty do you think he gets every single holiday season oh from his two movies alone? Oh, my gosh. Probably a lot. Just, <laughs> He's probably oh, living yeah. off of that. I mean, there's an ongoing conversation about how much does that actually happen. Right. With, you know, eventually they do die off or whatever, but I can't. Not those movies. I can't imagine his do. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like, you know, at some point it rolled over to when he was an adult. He got, Mm -hmm. because they pay the the parents and then they keep it in a fund and all of that. And so at some point, I mean, he obviously got a. a nest egg almost, and that's that's his nest egg. I mean, it was sort of like when um, Maggie Smith was on the Graham Norton show, and mm. was I think it was the Graham Norton show, some some talk show, and they were talking to her about you know um, what impact has the Harry Potter movies had on? Yeah, her. probably a lot, a lot. And she said, "I oh, I get mo- I get money from that all the time. It's my retirement because it's, yeah. <laughs> because stuff like that they they have in the agreements, it doesn't die off. Besides it's, Michael it's Gammon, forever. she was the oldest cast member, right? Yeah. Uh, I think she's older than Michael Gambon, isn't she? Oh, good lord! So, other than I mean, I think Richard Harris was older than her when right. he was on there. But before he passed, um, yeah, that's a nice retirement check for him. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, Macaulay's our age. Macaulay's <laughs> he's, our age. right. So he, he's the, he's like, just, I'm just gonna ride this out until like a uh, year older. Yeah. Right. Well, no, 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 no. He's not our age. He's he's around our age. Yeah. He he's about five years older because he was already. You know, it was 1990 when that first movie came out. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's crazy, and uh, it's Santa Claus is twenty five years old. What? It just doesn't seem possible. Doesn't seem because I saw that in theaters mm, when right. it came out. Um, I like that. I never saw the third one, but I like the first and second. And um, yeah, those were two that we considered, but we decided to go with some random lo fi thing. And you know, I'm fine with that because it was fun. Yeah, so. well, there you go. Uh, yeah, but other than that. I'd- we didn't really watch anything. I mean, of course, I caught up on all the screeners. And mm-hmm. if you guys have been keeping up with the podcast feed, Two Popes, Peanut Butter Falcon, yeah. uh, Dark Waters, uh, Judy, and um, 
waves. And so uh, caught up on, uh, and maybe maybe Joel will do the same here. He's got the floor, you know, if he wants to pitch some of you guys some last-minute reviews, yeah. he's, he's, he's able to do that. But, uh, yeah, it's a pretty pretty chill week. But I think the biggest recommendation, that, that Watchmen finale was amazing. You need to keep watching I know. I need, to, I need to catch up with it. Um, I'm probably going to do that in this next week because I don't have much going on. So Right. Watch, yeah. watch that and then catch up on Mandalorian. Yeah. Because the final yeah, episode I, I dropped today to... as we're recording. I, I got to let Jewel leave the house before I can even watch it. <laughs> so I'll, I'll watch it tomorrow. But yeah, I'm I will excited. just I will just never leave the house. I'm just kidding. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway, so it was, Little it was Women. Great, yes, Little Women. Let's which we saw about review. five years ago. Oh, my gosh. We saw this before Thanksgiving. I saw it again. I don't know if you had the chance to see it. No, again, but... uh, you, me, and the missus saw it November 20th. And then we got the screener for it like two days later. I haven't touched it since. Right. <laughs> well... Yeah, I, I just to get into th- this movie is really special. It was obviously, as people will remember, it was my most anticipated movie of the whole year. Whenever I uh, got there, because it it's from the director of Lady Bird, it's which is my favorite movie of 2017, as everybody will know <laughs> by now. I don't say it often enough. I don't think <laughs> it's supposed to be Logan, though. But if you want to go with right. Lady Bird, that's fine. Uh, I think I picked the right one, but um. Mm. But yeah, so I was excited, um, and you know, I love the novel. I've seen several of the other adaptations, um, not in a long time, but I've seen them, and um, and so yeah, because this this was more important to you than it was for me because you you read the yes, novel. Like exactly. I'm sure you've seen many and, of the and, other adaptations, and, and obviously like the director. You know, this this one was big for me, and whenever I was sitting there. Last December and trying to figure out my most anticipated, I came across this and I'm like, yeah, it fits completely. Every, every just fills every um, every space. Now, will it show up on my top ten? We'll we'll have to see. But it is um, it's fantastic. This movie mm. is is I just I loved every second of this and I loved it even more on the second go because there are there are nuances that whenever you first see a movie, pretty much any movie, especially something like this, which moves at a certain energy and with a certain kind of temperature, temperament, whatever you want to say, you're kind of overwhelmed. There are several scenes here of the sisters, which are um, uh, played by Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Eliza Scanlon, and Florence Pugh. Uh, The story is set in Connecticut uh, right after the Civil War has ended. Um where they're all in a room together, they're talking really quickly, they're talking over each other and all of that, and it's the Noah Baumbach effect. He does that a lot, mm-hmm. and it's something that Gerberg has learned considering she's his partner. I don't know what wife or fiancé or what, but partner and writing partner, and um, and it's something that she definitely learned from him, from working with him on films, and then incorporated that into this movie. All of it is workshop. There's not a single bit of, there's not a single instance of an actress saying, "Oh, well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna start saying my line of dialogue now." That's not, that's not how really it works. It's every single, everything, single thing is planned out mm. perfectly and and with um, a real sense of uh, purpose. And that's just throughout. Um, yeah, you have to, you have to do that when you're dealing with period pieces, right? Yeah, you can't just like loosely shoot one of those things and like everything's got to be on point and it's a careful balancing act because she's really she's she's approaching this period piece as if it's a modern film in many ways because mm-hmm. 
you 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 know the feel of acting and dialogue in these movies set in the olden times as they call it the the, the old days um it's a, a lot of it's very theatrical a lot of it's really i mean set in the south so it's kind of comes with the territory of these heavy accents and all of that this is set in massachusetts they don't have such heavy accents they do mm. have that kind of they're not in boston but they are in um concord i think it's concord uh massachusetts and there there is the sort of the massachusetts kind of northeastern quality to some of their um accents so they have to take this dialogue and just deliver it as if they're in a modern day movie as if they're in a greta gerwig movie and it's such an incredible balancing act it's really hard to do and what's amazing about what gerwig does is she sets all of that against this just pristinely recreated version of Massachusetts in the 1860s. Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematography is gorgeous. York Lasso, who had a really interesting year with this uh, nonfiction, which we saw out at um, Diff. Very different movie in terms of the visual language. And then the most different movie <laughs> is High Life, which he also shot. Just crazy just that there are three movies uh, like that this year from the same cinematographer. And... Um, I just I just love how um how it looks and how it feels this restless energy that just moves forward through these different points in the timeline and it just should be said that the the approach here from Gerwig who wrote the script and directed the movie is that instead of telling the novel which was um actually uh um published in two parts uh, I think I forgot what the title of the second part was but since then has been condensed into one this takes opens at the opens in the relative present which is um seven years later kind of and then it continues on and it cuts back and forth between this relative present and the past and something that mark our friend mark we're about to be talking to in about three hours um said really well about this movie in his review was that basically the act of doing that opens this movie up because you have the the present being informed by the past or the future being informed by the past the the past informing the future by um literally i mean they're coming of age you know these people age from around 14 to maybe 21 ish is uh the oldest um person's age at least there's seven years where we, uh, through which we follow them, and so you have all of these. But then the act of watching all of these things happen next to each other gives gives us the the feeling of all of their their hopes and their fears and their um, their successes and their failures and their tragedies and all of and, and their their celebrations all are happening at the same time. So it's a constant. So the fact that it's all happening at different points in time is important and it's important in how she tells the story and it opens the movie up but at the same time we're experiencing all of it at once so all of these things are just kind of um just you know happening for us at once so that we are able to experience them all at once and it's a constant so i just love that i love that approach i think that um that that's kind of Gerwig's strength as a director is to subvert our expectations. 
She subverted our expectations with Lady Bird in many ways. It wasn't just simply a coming-of-age tale. It was set in a certain period. It was it was semi-autobiographical. It was um, uh, about a really prickly main character in many ways kind of subverting our expectations for what we want, for what we think we might see in a coming-of-age movie. It wasn't the usual thing. In this, it isn't the usual adaptation of Little Women, and that is incredibly special. So that's the kind of the general, you know, her strengths as a director and, and screenwriter here are are shown in the the chosen way of presenting the story with this kind of screwy structure. And um, if you're a purist and this sounds like a nightmare to you, <laughs> then I'm sorry, but this is what she's done if you haven't been able to see this yet. But trust me, it works. I didn't think it would. Um, and it's it's truly excellent. So, And the actors here. Hmm. They're all in point. They are. It's. I think it's might be the year's best ensemble. Right. Um. This would be my choice. And now, that's saying something because there's a lot of great ensembles this year. The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, even something with less like name actors like Parasite or something. But I think that this is the best because they all seem to be right on each other's level at every single moment. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing because they've become so comfortable with this this radical vision of the novel. And so they're right, right on everyone's level. So like right at the front, you know, Saoirse Ronan does her thing, which is to create a character who is a very like, um, an almost, almost like a, a burst of original energy. Like you don't, when you watch Saoirse Ronan play a character, and this has been the same since atonement, which was unlike any other child performance I'd seen, uh, at that point, you uh, an incredible an incredible film uh, a near masterpiece and she's amazing in it you get this feeling that no one else would perform the role like she does and here you don't you almost don't expect even if you know kind of the contours of this character you don't expect her to play her this way which is as this um, this young woman who just does not believe in marriage and not because of any sort of resentment toward anything she just wants to do her own thing, which is become an author. Right. She's entirely, entirely just um, set in her in her goal of of becoming an author, becoming a world famous author if she can, and uh, and make her money that way. And we see that later on. I mean, she is really just kind of she's shunted off the whole like. Um, all the manners that in which she could make money that are the ones that make sense for a woman in the 1860s, and it's just refreshing to see somebody play that with such a with such robust energy. Mm-hmm. Love that. Um, and two of the sisters uh, that are I'm going to get into these first before what I think is actually the best performance in the movie uh, is one of the sisters. In the novel, you always got the feeling that in comparison to Joe and Amy, I'll get to Amy in a second. Uh, Meg and Beth, uh, who are played by Watson and Scanlon, are the characters who were really kind of a little bit more broad in their development. There was something a little more um, uh, typical in their development. They aren't quite as... Uh, uh, you know, Beth basically exists... And this is not a spoiler. This This novel has existed for 
many, many years. So I'm not really spoiling anything. If you haven't read the novel by now, I'm sorry. But, uh, but Beth basically exists here to teach these, these siblings that death happens to the young. And yes, that is ultimately what happens to Beth, um, who you know dies at the end of this, um, uh, near the end of the story, and uh, and that's basically the only the only reason that she exists. And Meg is more like she she knows kind of what she wants to do, but she also knows that her place in this society is to uh, be married to someone who is rich so that she can make money for her family. And she ultimately doesn't do that. It's kind of the, the um, almost the blunt. Almost, I don't want to say joke because it's not funny, but almost the trick with the character is that she's ultimately used to comment on, in a certain way, um, these deferred dreams of wanting success as an actress on the stage and wanting a lot of money when she actually ends up getting married to this penniless tutor played by John or James Norton. Um, and so, yeah, just, you know, two really, really solid performances, again, right in line with Ronan's. But the best for me, gotta say, and this is the best, I think, best performance in the whole movie, uh, not just among the sisters, is Florence Pugh, who is absolutely stunning here. She's had a great year with this, and Midsommar, as much as I don't like that movie, I did like her in it a lot, and fighting with my family was a huge, just huge surprise in all, right. every way, especially her. And as soon as I saw that movie, I was excited for whatever year she was going to have. And this is her best performance of the year um, that she gave. And it's just her playing Amy, who was always kind of the most, um, almost the most pathetic in a certain way of the characters because she's she is the third in line mm-hmm. in this family. And she wants to be an artist she wants to be a painter uh but she wants to be the greatest painter she Mm -hmm. that's her because of the fact that she's kind of fallen down in her family she's the she's the third person she's kind of the forgotten sister she always feels like everybody else has some advantage over her the way that pew plays her and i'm gonna say something and i and i have always like I've, I've told somebody this, and I told them I, I hate saying this because it sounds gendered in a way. Mm. It sounds weird, but there's something about the way that when Florence Pugh, because of just the natural features of her face, lets her face fall, she pouts. It's 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 a it's a it's a natural pout. It's because of the 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 cur the the corners of her mouth automatically just go downward, and because of because the top of her lip stays there, it just is a pout. So. She's clearly understood this over the course of her life, and she decides to use it here. It, it works into her favor with Midsommar. Yes, it does, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, and, uh, and it works a, a few times, although they don't really rely on it in fighting with my family. There are a few moments there, especially with her brother in that story. Mm-hmm. And here, it's a character who's constantly let down, constantly let down, constantly let down, constantly second to Joe, and spe- specifically played by Ronan. Um, and she does that with... with this role where, and then there's this great scene. I think it's actually maybe the shot of the or one of the shots of the year where she's in a studio with um, Laurie, who is I'll get to him in a second, but he's uh, played by Timothy Chalamet. Where they're talking about marriage, um, and at this point in the narrative, Amy is engaged to be married to this British guy we barely see, uh, 
who is uh, constantly off to London for work, and she's in Paris, and they're constantly apart. And the Chalamet character is questioning whether or not she would actually go through with this if he got down on one knee, did the did the typical thing for a wedding gesture, and <clears throat> um, she basically lays out to him that at this point in history, <laughs> and she literally puts it this way, marriage is an economic proposition, and, she, and it's a setup of her literally starting to talk and walking toward him and toward the camera, which pulls back as she's walking forward. And it's her Oscar clip if she gets nominated, which I'm thinking she will, um, because of the fact that Pew's performance is so carefully and just thoroughly attuned to the struggles of this character who just um, is almost suffering from really kind of um, interruptions and in privilege almost, the the very slight privilege that she's been able to, to accrue over time, and now she's this painter, she's been let down by reviews and people's opinions and all of that, and it's just, it's just stunning, and so, yeah, she's just, she's great uh, in this movie, it's one of the best uh, <clears throat> supporting performances of the year, and then... Uh, you have some of these other actors who are really great uh, as well, and I mentioned Timothy Chalamet. You know, it, people felt like this and The King on Netflix were weird decisions in terms of putting him in roles, but one has to account for the fact that he was classically trained in theater. It was in high school, sure, or secondary school, or whatever he called it. Maybe, maybe um, I think he's still. I think he's in college, maybe. I'm not sure what he, what he's doing in that in, in that respect, but he's been classically trained. He's he's worked with Shakespeare. He's worked with all these different playwrights who are considered some of the greatest of all time. So he's been classically trained. I feel like his entire training has been preparing him specifically for this year, where he did this Shakespeare thing with the king that reworked Shakespeare into a narrative, a bunch of Shakespeare um, uh, plays into a into one narrative, and now he does this, which is this sort of like. Um, classic novel adaptation which are always really hard to get right and he attacks it and he just nails the role it's a great performance it's probably my second favorite performance in the movie and then you have you know Meryl Streep does her thing she plays the aunt here who is old and um, has her opinions about <laughs> you know this progress that her her um, uh, nieces are, are making and um, Laura Dern, really, really good as their mother, Marmy. Um, Chris Cooper shows up as Timothy Chalamet's, uh, I think, grandfather. Um, He's had a great year. He this has, and the people yeah, in the this, neighborhood. Yeah. Oh. Two very different fathers. <clears throat> like, just two supremely different fathers. Uh, one's very put together, very gentle, very calm. The other one's in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is is kind of a, <laughs> a butthole. Um, and... Yeah, he's great. Um, you know, Louis Garel, who plays this um, French prof- uh, uh, French yeah French professor, who ultimately kind of is Joe's beau, and she gets married to him at the end. Um, he's really good, and he's probably not a face that Americans are super familiar with. If there's any French listeners out there, you probably know who he is. He's a big he's a big uh, commodity over there, but he's a great French director. He's the son of the the Philippe Garel, who's one of the um, formative directors of, of French cinema, and uh, 
He's done his own movies, which have been I've seen a couple of them. They're both really good, and um, he's fantastic here. Totally fits. Uh, you know, Bob Odenkirk shows up very briefly, but makes a big impact. Anyway, it's a deep cast, guys, and it's a it's a fantastically well put together movie. The cinematography is beautiful. You know, I didn't even get to the I didn't even touch the production design, which is just recreates this period with complete meticulousness. Um, I think the score is beautiful. Alexandre Desplat, gorgeous, uh, and just so many grace notes. I just I love how again how Gerwig has structured this story to um, amplify every strength of the novel in a way that makes it feel new again because that is hard to do with a movie with a with a property like Little Women, which has been which had been so often um, adapted for film and television and all of that just really hard to do that you know these adaptations are going back to 1917 i don't even know if you knew that but the first two have been lost uh 1917 and 1918 were um uh, ones in different countries i think one i don't know how that happened but there was i think one in um germany or something and both of those have been lost but i mean these literally go back 103 years 102 years at this point and it's just insane how gerwig was able to convince us that we needed another one and follow through on that with such such showmanship and i just i just am excited to see where she goes you know (laughs) she's got a barbie movie next is just hilarious to me just because it seems like such a weird left turn but then again who expected her to go to a little women adaptation from lady bird so it's you know we're looking at a very unpredictable career but a really interesting one to watch so that's my review. It's a clear A for me. Um, you know whether it'll show up on my top ten or not. You'll have to find out on uh, this coming Wednesday, uh, Tuesday, but um, December thirty first. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it is a fantastic movie, back to front. It was even better the second time. Again, I picked up on little things, little moments that I was like, oh man, I didn't I didn't quite notice that before. Um, little flourishes, just fantastic and. Um, and it was very heartening, too, because after our screening, uh, I was talking with someone who did not appreciate the difference of structure from the novel. They wanted just a straight adaptation of the novel. Whereas, when I got out of the movie on uh, Wednesday, I literally heard someone say, man, this man that story really needed that. They really needed to do like the flashback where they flash back and forth. So that's really, really heartening. That And uh, <laughs> I guess it says a lot. The person who didn't like it was a woman who I would say is probably late 50s. The person who did like it, around my age, maybe even younger. So clearly something about this connects with younger people maybe more, but still, give this a chance. It is a phenomenal piece of um, subverted expectations, once again. I just, I love it. So clear A for me. Chase, I'll let you have the floor. Yeah, you know, when you said this was your most anticipated of, 2019 obviously there's a lot riding on um its shoulders and when you have uh Greta Gerwig doing you know Lady Bird and getting nominated for that like this is the follow-up that you need to live or die by if this was terrible then I would feel really worried for her career but this movie's really good and she's gonna have a great career um yeah I just really thought it was really elegant it was wonderful um I, I love the fact that it is this grand 
kind of like period piece, but she's able to hone in on the emotions and specific emotions that we're supposed to care about throughout the entire film. Uh, every single one of them have a different goal in mind. They have a different mindset. And it was really great to kind of see them. Um, this isn't really a coming of age. It's more of like finding out who you are as an individual. Because in this time frame, post-Civil War, you know, you have uh, people like Saoirse Ronan's character who just, she's like, why are things this way? Mm-hmm. I don't understand, like, why I can't do my own thing. And then people are like, well, that's not, women cannot do that. And then you have, like, Florence Pugh, who's also questioning things. And then, uh, unfortunately, you have the kind of opposite effect, where you have, like, Eliza Scanlon, who, you know, without spoiling anything, what happens to her, you know, she's very content with where she's at and where she she doesn't really have any ambitions, but she's still loved by everyone. And you kind of feel bad for her, especially like what happens with her. You're like, man, she had so much life ahead of her kind of. uh." And of course, Emma Watson just, she always like strikes this type of presence uh, in any movie that she does. Um, You know, I didn't really care for beauty and the beast, but she still commanded that movie. And you know, the smallest role of the sisters. And that's very small. And again, that, that tracks with the novel where she was more, of kind of a functioning because we always you know we followed joe primarily and meg was sort of meant to be the um aspirational point Mm -hmm. for them the north star for them almost and um ends up not really being that but she she is sort of a more functional character but yeah emma watson does make her her own yeah she gets her moments every single it's like it's like you said it's a great ensemble but everyone sticks out for all the right reasons. Like, you remember every single person. Even with Eliza Scanlon. She barely has anything to say in the movie, but, like, she has a presence there. And there's a reason why she's there, and it really, you know, has a, a strong effect on the, the family. And, of course, like you said, Meryl Streep is there. She's doing her Meryl Streep. Um, Laura Dern is also great. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if Florence Pugh doesn't get nominated for supporting, we might see a case where she can get double nominated for two separate movies. For Dern, uh, oh, right. for this yeah. and Marriage Story, mm-hmm. uh, who knows? It doesn't actually. Wait, no, uh, no, it can't. It, you can't it do can't, that. Yeah, you can't get nominated um, in the in the same category twice anymore. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, anymore? Yeah, because yeah. I was like, it happened not I recently. Don't think but... it's, I don't think it's ever happened. I don't know if it's never happened because it was a rule all mm. the time. But yeah, there's there's a rule about that. You can't do that. That's why. Uh, um, it was kind of disappointing when Leonardo DiCaprio wasn't nominated for The Departed, but was for Blood Diamond. He was because mm. he had been nominated at um, the Golden Globes in the, the actor drama category twice, but for the Oscars, yeah, you can't do that. Okay, well, never mind. She'll get uh, nominated for Marriage yeah, Story. Marriage Story. Uh, but yes, She'll probably I, win for Marriage Story. Right, and if I had to pick, uh, I think Florence Pugh will probably get nominated as well. It's just right. Yeah, no, I, I I think that she. Yeah, she's had a great year, and it's gonna be great when she's in Black Widow next year. Well, and because I think ScarJo is gonna win, it'll star uh, uh, an Oscar winner, an Oscar nominee, and a Razzie winner. Um, it, did you catch that joke? I see Joel, <laughs> his face just turned red because, uh, which, which is also a great pun. Because uh, uh, okay. David Harbour, we love you, man, but you're probably gonna get a Razzie this year. Um, yeah, but um, everyone does uh, great in the movie. Uh, I just. I just, yeah, I, I don't understand how you could not like this movie. Mm-hmm. You, I, I can understand, like, liking it or loving it. Like, for instance, I know you and Mark are on the same page. I'm a step below you guys, but I'm not that far from the pond. It's like we're all in the same kind of group. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but it, high appreciation, <laughs> right? It's it's a right. heartwarming movie. It's a great holiday movie. I'm so mm-hmm. glad that Sony released it around Christmas time. The theater was packed. Yeah, I bet it was when <clears throat> when we got in there. I don't think there was a seat empty, and it this was great. great to see. And it was it was a weird time on Christmas Day, so that's even better because you don't see that often. I've been to movies at like two fifteen on Christmas Day, right? Where it was a really popular movie, and, it, and they ended up doing well. You didn't see anybody in the theater because they mm. were all going to other screenings in the day. This one, three fifty-five showing on on Christmas Day, and there was not a seat empty, and everybody was getting along with that movie, and it was great to see. It's a, it's a great family film, and yeah. it's in great contrast to the ultra adult uncut gems that dropped on the same day. So you know, <laughs> right. it's a yeah. Do you want to take your family to Little Women or Uncut no, Gems? Just uh. just you wait. There's pervasive strong language in Little Women too. Oh right, I think they say <laughs> hell once. Ooh. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a great family film. Like you said, the production design, the costuming, so meticulous and so elegant and just, oh, Like, it's amazing to me that she decided to take on this project. Because Lady Bird, if you think about it, yeah, it was set in, like, what, 2002, 2001? Yeah, 2002. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's not – you don't have to do that much with production design. I mean, it was right, only right. 17 years ago. It's not like it's we're talking – basically just, like, props right. much. Yeah. So you can, you can keep the settings the same. Like, that would freak me out as a director uh, going from that to doing something 200-plus years ago. And it's like, uh... And it's lucky that uh, I believe... Somebody will probably correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I think it was Jess Gonshore who did the production design. And Gonshore works a lot with the Coen brothers. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising. I mean, she's got got a great crew here. I mean, Desplat, I mentioned, Lasso's cinematographer, um... Uh, the editor is her regular editor, Nahui, um, who did Lady Bird as well and uh, I think has uh, worked on a couple of uh, Baumbach movies and at least is an assistant editor. I don't know if, if uh, he was the main editor, but um, but is becoming a regular. And yeah, the production design, I think it's just gone short enough. It's not as Nancy Hayes. Somebody, somebody who was attributed, uh, um, uh, attached to a lot of Coen Brothers movies and that just kind of pretty much like tells you like there there's a sense of real meticulous craft mm-hmm. here if it's not nominated for production design i'm, it, not, it I'm not even gonna watch <laughs> not really i am gonna watch but it should be it, it needs to be because it's absolutely gorgeous and the costumes are are lived in they're lived yeah. in which is important too they feel like these these characters these people are living in these clothes they're not just wearing them up as a as a drapery mm-hmm. kind of thing which i which i find a lot in those stuffy kind of british period pieces where lots of simple camera angles is that the clothes don't feel like they were lived in here there's just very specific de- details where it feels like they've been wearing the sh- their shirts or blou- or dresses or whatever for a while you think about like that scene that I was talking about with uh, with um, Pew and Chalamet in in an art studio, where she's got this um, uh, the bib kind of thing or mm-hmm. whatever it's called for painting, you know, to protect her clothing. Um, the bib is clearly a bit of costume design, but it looks it's it's br- it's like it's used. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's not like a bunch of paint on it, but it looks like it's somebody is has been using it for a while. And yeah, there's, just there's, little details like that where they're able to maybe age up the clothes just mm-hmm. a little bit. Well, there's a soft look to the cinematography, mm-hmm. and it really kind of uh, makes that whole environment look like mm-hmm. it is lived in. It's warm. It's yeah. not stuffy. This is Don't worry about this, folks. It's not 
a stuffy British, you know, it's not a stuffy period drama. It's not British at all, but not a stuffy period drama. It's a very loose, likable, easily accessible one. And, right. Um, yeah, I, I just think the balance that Gerwig uh, did with, um, you know, making it this big, lavish kind of set piece and the community and the clothes and everything, but also make us care about the people. Mm-hmm. Because people can make, you know, big and boisterous, you know, um, period pieces, but do we actually care about what's going on? Right. And so there's a lot of, you know, beats that are hit within the story that even I, that was, you know, it, it took me a while to get into the movie, but like once those moments hit, I was like, okay, th- yeah. this is it for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, whether Sersha had a uh, an outburst, you know, telling about her dreams or like you said, the, the paint scene with Pew or um, specific things that happened with, with Scanlon's character or, you know, Emma Watson. Like it's just, it's just a really good movie. And yeah. I know, like I said, there's people in the same camp, like you and Mark and people like me, cause I'm gonna give it like a B plus. Mm-hmm. It's as high as I go. Um, but yeah, I've really nothing bad to say about it. It's just, yeah. and this is, this sort of joins a beautiful day in the neighborhood as one of these late year PG rated movies that are for mm-hmm. families Maybe not like three year olds, but yeah, that are four families because this is perfectly. I mean, it's in terms of things that are objectionable, you know, there's literally one curse word in this movie. One curse word. There's actually a few more in uh, <laughs> Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And this, I mean, literally, I think the PG ratings like thematic elements and brief smoking. And the smoking happens at the beginning because Tracy Lutz shows up as a, um, as a publisher and he smokes a cigar. That's it. There's nothing but, but it does deal with here and... it deals with a lot of you know hard hitting issues that people might yes. face in life, which is great because they don't shy away from that. They tackle right. it head on. Yeah, but they don't treat you like you're an idiot because it and, is and, a PG rated movie. And here's the fact of the matter: I mean, some some people's siblings die. Yeah, and, and that that does happen here, um, and that's going to be something that is troubling, especially if like just so happens that there's you know a ten ten or eleven year old who's lo- who's lost a sibling. It's going to hit hard, but it's right. going to be one of those things that that is valuable because it really does uh hammer home that it happens that maybe you don't you don't get over it that you know there's this big long final scene it's almost like it's almost like a montage except that it all happens in the same scene if that makes sense where they're all kind of coming together into this perfect family portrait kind of thing sitting at a table and of course it makes no you know it makes it takes care to include kind of space in the scene for another person to exist that's clearly Beth, but is she's not there. And you can feel the absence, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I just, I love how it's able to do that. It's able to take that Well, it reminded me of, like, stuff serious. The, the PG, like, family films that we saw as kids. Like, for instance, who in their right mind at Warner Brothers thought it was okay to raid uh, – uh, my dog Skip as PG. Right. <laughs> that killed me as a kid, and it still does to this day. But once again, oh. it's like you said, stuff like that happens. Yes. This is, this is, I mean, maybe it doesn't hit quite as hard as that. <laughs> it does, or is, is, maybe, maybe as hard, but maybe not as suddenly as that does. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I saw My Dog Skip in theaters too. And yeah, I was nine. But you, it challenges you, you though. And it, yeah. and it challenges the, the younger viewers to kind of ease into some of the, you know, because they're eventually going to be adults. So you might as well introduce them to some adult stuff in stages and this is kind of the perfect little stepping stone for parents to bring their kids to a movie and say hey this is not cars three this is a little bit of a more serious thing that uh kids can enjoy adults can enjoy exactly and it's got that kind of broad appeal i think Mm -hmm. um 
and it's the same thing with a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A little heavier in that movie, but right. still, uh, you know, valuable lessons. And and both have Chris Cooper. So if you get, if you take your t- kids to both of these movies, they'll get introduced to one of the great living actors. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, um, Sony's had a great year with between this a beautiful day in the neighborhood and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And, they are and, killing yeah, it this year. Exactly. And of course, uh, just, just as a cherry on top, oh, we made a billion plus dollars with Far From Home. It's, just, it's nothing though, but <laughs> right, we, made, I was we about did to that. Say, you forgot Far From Home. No, no, right. that's like an afterthought. They're they're focused on awards now. They're like, all right, move aside billion dollar movie. We're going to focus on these guys now. Right. Exactly. So, anyway, it's a fantastic movie, folks. Please go see it. You'll hear a little bit about it in our top ten episode for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's fantastic. So that's our review of Little Women. Um, now we have one other bit of business, or I guess two other bits of business to take care of. So. Here's the thing. So <laughs> building the notes, and as we said, there's really nothing that happened. So we decided to go another route. And luckily, I remembered, having forgotten this, that at our halfway point through the year episode, we did this thing before each segment, each of the best and worst segments, about our most disappointing and most surprising films of the year. So I figured that we would bring that back, and sort of like what we do um in in that episode i figured that what we would first cover is our most disappointing film that we saw in 2019 now just as a reminder whenever we did the episode at the halfway point my choice for most disappointing was under the silver lake from david robert mitchell chases was glass right and so um yeah so they've changed <laughs> obviously We've had six months of movies, and um, they've changed. So, Chase, do you want to give us what your pick for the most disappointing movie was? Yes, and unfortunately, it's going to be a huge blow below your belt. Um, it's Star Wars Nine. It's it. I'm sorry, but when you're going from like the high of the Last Jedi, you get to <clears throat> excuse me, you get to this one, you're like. Okay, that's was fine, whatever. Like, that's a huge drop for me. And I was super excited for it because I loved number eight. And I was like, yeah, I, I realize it's JJ is coming back from Force Awakens, but, you know, you could still end it on a high note and I could still, you know, accept it. But I, for me, that was the one that I was up here for. It just was lukewarm in right. the end. Yeah, and I totally understand that. I mean, we had a conversation about, you know, if, especially considering you're so casual in your fandom certain things are just not going to hit you in the same way that they hit me. Of course, I was a huge fan of the movie. Um, I'm sad to hear that it's your most disappointing, but I knew immediately uh, this is probably going to be his now because I know that you did love The Last Jedi. I know that you had high hopes for this. And um, for me, it worked. For you, it didn't. Um, My most disappointing uh, is a comedy sequel. And because back in 2009, I loved Zombieland. And I thought that it was just this burst of enormous creative energy, this really, really clever... It was almost like Shaun of the Dead, maybe not as good, but Shaun of the Dead for Americans, kind of some, you know, including reference points that we would primarily get um, in American culture, uh, such as, you know, like the... um, uh, just the whole the whole concept of like theme parks being used at the end of it, kind of American. So, anyway, 
Zombieland Double Tap just, and probably most people have forgotten that this came out. Honestly, I did too until I was looking through my diary on Letterboxd trying to figure out, you know, what was the one that I was most let down by. And it's this one pretty clearly. I, I just, I was just so let down by the weak comedy, the, um, the fact that they're basically just returning to the well. They barely grow any of the characters. They pick us up from almost precisely where they left off kind of emotionally and all of that uh, just as characters from the last movie. There's been 10 years. Grow them a little bit more. I just felt like it was a waste of my time, and I didn't want to say that. I didn't hate it. You know, this is not one that I that I hated, but I did feel like it was an, an enormous letdown um, for all of the potential that it had as the sequel to one of the better comedies of 2009. Not the best, but... Um, that was Observe and Report, but um, but one of the best comedies of, of 2009, and then the sequel comes out 10 years later, nobody really cares, you know, it was at the beginning of this resurgence for zombies, now zombies have, you know, gone off the, the um, gone the way of the dodo again, just wasn't even, like, relevant to right now, all the humor felt old hat, it was just a big letdown, and it's just, yeah, so it was sad for me, so that's my... That's my pick for most disappointing in zombie. Land. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that. I mean, I even when we were reviewing it, I I even told you that. I, I mean, I didn't hate it or love it, but like it is a humongous step down from the first one, right? And I think it was just in this case, uh, ten years too late, right? Type of deal. Exactly. Yeah, it just way too late. Um, you know, I guess in many ways there was probably not any real way that they could make this work, and maybe even be a genuinely good movie. Um, I think at most, I think you gave it a B minus, right? Or C, like C, C plus or B minus. And, Around that area. Yeah, and it's basically, I think that B minus is the highest you could give something like this mm. at this point. If it had been fresher, you know, obviously we all have our biases. It would have been, it, w- it might have been a little bit higher if it came out in like 2014 even, you know, five years. And It um, came out two months ago and it does feel like we saw it last yes, year. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't even feel like a 2019 movie. You know, it came out literally, literally two months ago, two months and a week ago. So... Yeah, it just was a big, big, big letdown. So now we're going to go into our most surprising choices, uh, and this is going to um, uh, be our last little bit for this for this episode. But um, to remind people, our choices were kind of similar. They were both kids' movies that we weren't really anticipating. Uh, one, I didn't even know about mine. We did know that yours was coming. But my choice was Nancy Drew and the... Hidden Staircase, which ended up being pretty delightful. And it's definitely a contender, by the way, to have been like kept that title. But it probably is still like number three or number four of the movies that I really was knocked out by that were actually good. Um, yours was The Kid Who Would Be King, which is just delightful. And we both agree with that. You know, it gets a little busy, a little, you know, special effectsy at the end, but it is. A lot of fun, and we for both a January agree. movie. For a I'll January take it. movie, exactly. Yep. It's it's uh it's it's fantastic, and so we can only hope that like Doolittle or something this coming mm-hmm. January might be something like that because it, it looked it looks it looked about as bad as Doolittle looks. Like from the trailers, it just wasn't promising, and it was it was good. So that's what that's what our choices were at that point. Interestingly enough, my choice hasn't deviated so much. Um, <laughs> this movie. Was one that I that we were both like, why is this being made? Why is and I think it was Sony? Why is Sony doing this movie at 
all. What are they thinking? And it's Dora and the Lost City of Gold. This movie... That's Paramount. Oh, Paramount. Okay. That it's, scared I, me for a second. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Sony had another one that I forgot about? <laughs> no, Par- you know what's weird is like Paramount's been in this business because like now they, they have Sonic coming out. Like right. they love doing like the children's stuff like yes. playing with fire it's like yeah what is that the business they want to get in and like it's just weird so what i'm hoping i and we all we're always like you know con- not confident um we're always pretty uh optimistic we can hope and i think that we both we both agree with this uh, uh we would agree on this we can both hope that sonic the hedgehog is as good as this ended up being it has the potential it looks really awful but so did dora it looked like Every parent's nightmare of what they're going to take their children to. They're going to go. They're going to sit. They're going to be bored. They're going to see a lot of slapstick. There's some slapstick in this movie, but there is not nearly as much annoyance. There's a really actually kind of uh, interesting mystery at the center of this movie. And there's a really likable character and a fantastic performance at the center of it. And that's Isabella Monaire, who plays Dora. And this is, of course, the the live-action update. Um, She's... Um, she's trying to find the lost city of gold and uh, various things, you know, uh, in, with regard to that. Now, the least successful parts of this movie are the ones that looked like they were going to be the least successful parts of this movie, like the fact that Benicio del Toro has this role as um, as a fox, and there's a CGI monkey that is not even remotely sad, uh, convincing. Any, all of that is stuff that doesn't work. But at the center of it is a really likable story that's fun. This is the kind of thing, and it's actually kind of edgy, by the way. It's it's edgy. It's edgier than you think it is. And it's one of those things where it could be if a parent is wanting to introduce their kids eventually to Indiana Jones or something, and they feel like uh, maybe that's a little too much for right now, then they could go to movies like we've just mentioned, like this, Kid Who Would Be King. This is every bit as good as that movie, I thought. Uh, Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase. These movies that are kids' movies that treat their that treat the kids with respect. Kids are intelligent. They know what they like. They know what they're they're bored by. We talked about it with Ugly Dolls being one of your least favorite movies. That basically, whenever I went to that movie, there was a kid who was bored with everything that was supposed to be targeted toward her, and was laughing at all the stuff that was subversive that was supposed to kind of appease the parents in the audience that might understand it. This five-year-old kid understood the more subversive stuff. Kids are intelligent. They know what they like. They know what's good. They know what's bad. They can tell what you know what movies are boring. They can tell what movies are a waste of time. And I think that, that kids will get a lot out of these three movies. And I just feel like, most surprisingly, because it looked like the worst of them, uh, Dora and the Lost Sea of Gold. I was not anticipating this movie at all. And um, again, Isabella Monaire, I... Uh, I guess I should, we should, we didn't even talk about this. Um, we just recently got uh, inducted into a new film critics association. And I don't know if you've done this yet, but we're supposed to be doing uh, submissions balloting uh, due on the second for basically like, uh, these are the these are the weird categories that don't quite automatically get nomination, nominations. So we're going to allow you to dictate the field. And when it came to best youth performance, I put Monera in there. Because I, and I put um, uh, Lewis Ashbourne Circus in. I didn't even think about that. Right, and I didn't even I, I didn't even think actually I probably should have done this. Sophia Lillis would have been good for Nancy Drew, 
I didn't put that in because I just had there were there were too many. I think my but, favorite one was uh, Roman from JoJo. Right, I put yeah. him in there. I put um, uh, and Archie, I think. I didn't put him, but he fan, fantastic Archie Yates, yeah, from uh, yeah from JoJo Rabbit. But I put Isabella Monet because it's mm. one that it's a performance that stuck with me. She absolutely understands how to take this character, bring it to life, and also kind of wink at the absurdity of bringing this character to life in some spots where she's talking directly to the camera and the entire time it's obviously a big wink that we're not actually going to do this but this, we're we're going to kind of incorporate the whole talking to the camera thing right and it's a really fun little movie i didn't expect it to be as good as it was but it was it was uh it was quite good so definite recommendation dora and the lost city of gold really surprised me it might surprise you too so that's my choice for most surprising film all right i'll, I'll make sure when i'm on a plane next and i have nothing to watch i'll pick that one <laughs> um it, I, you know what i know I, that i haven't really convinced chase but well we're good <laughs> hey listen paramount has their deal with hulu and we have hulu and so whenever it drops on there i will uh, check it out if i get if i get bored um so with mine i decided to go with um I think a lot, there's a lot of people out there that would pick this one, but I'm going to do the other one that's a little smaller just because I didn't really expect much, but I actually really enjoyed it. Um, so the first obvious one, I think a lot of people, you know, because I saw the trailers and they're like, it looks fine, but I ended up liking it more than I thought I would, Hustlers. Mm, and okay. so, you know, because we reviewed that that movie like when the buzz was coming out out of TIFF and like it was just this swell of like good word. And then when I saw it, I was like, okay. Uh, okay, I, I see what I see. What people were uh, now awards worthy. I don't know about that, but it is a good movie that I will back up any day. I mean, it does have an awards worthy Jennifer Lopez performance. She's fantastic. She's the only thing I can yeah, see. Right. Like, but people are saying like Best Picture, chill. Right, right, <laughs> it's right. not that good. Um, but I still would recommend it to anyone that is hesitant on a movie about strippers. Mm-hmm. I'll just say that. Yeah. All right, my most surprising one um, because I didn't really expect much and. You know, PG-13 horror is not really anything I gravitate towards. But, you know, stuff like Insidious, you know, it can convince me that there are good ones out there. Scary stories to tell in the dark. I I liked it a little bit more than I thought I would. Right. It's not like a masterpiece or whatever. But with the combination of having all the little short stories kind of being woven in throughout this little town, I thought it was nice. Like, it was clever. I was like, okay, they they did justice by it because you and I grew up with these books. And I was like... How do you do a collection of short stories into a feature film? Mm-hmm. And they, it could have gone so wrong because they right. could have just done the anthology thing. Mm-hmm. And that would have been assaultive because all those stories were really short. Right. And so if you just do the anthology thing, like uh, take it with a ballad of Buster Scruggs or Southbound type of approach, right? it's it's just it's going to be an assault of scare sequences, scare setups that are completely typical of the genre. And you're right. I mean, it's it's it really just, imaginative. Yes, it yeah. is imaginative. It's it's freaky. I mean, the the it's makeup work on this. Del Toro be, was a producer on it, so Toro, he you know he, he, he was the boss's got, you know kind of ear. Yeah, yeah. He got them in in uh, contact with the right makeup artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and this uh, the makeup should be uh, considered for Academy Awards. I'm going to be nominating it in the thing. I, I can't remember if they do do makeup. I believe they do. And I'm going to be nominating it because it's insane. Like the mm. big, the you know the one, the uh, the biggest one, the one that follows you down a hallway wherever you turn. The kind of like big lobby big woman. Glob- yes, yeah. exactly. She looks like she's melted. One of the best bits of like practical makeup effects of the year, I think, um, should absolutely be in the con- in contention for Oscars, uh, but it's not for some 
weird reason that I uh, just nobody's seen it. I guess it didn't really. I don't think it did very well, did it? I think it opened against some pretty heavy competition. It, it did good for what it was, right. and they left it off. Do you remember they left it off for a potential sequel? Right, right. Yeah. Which you know, who knows? But still, yeah, it was it was a little bit better, not great, but and it, and it's I better think than what it, I thought it'd be. Right, yeah, it's a little messy. It's mm-hmm. a little messy. Uh, trying to incorporate all of that stuff, some of it doesn't really work out. But it is. Uh, it was creepy. It it really did have some sequences in it that were that were effective. And uh, I, I can see a lot of kids like if parents are like, "Oh, that that's too much" or whatever. I can see them like, "Oh, you want to watch something a little edgy?" Yes. like seven, eight year old. Right, that's it yeah, right there. Because that's how the books were. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they were they were kids' books. They weren't so. It's not it chapter two. <laughs> no, no. You know? there's no pervasive language. There's no demonic clown showing up as. Uh, but as far as PG thirteen goes, they push the limit, right? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this if they were going to make this particular thing into a movie, it's always going to be PG thirteen at the mm-hmm. very least. But it's not R rated material, no. And um, maybe some of the background details are a little a little more lurid, but the the ones that they front load are 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 um, more PG thirteen friendly, kid friendly, com- in comparison to Stephen King stuff. And um, in the midst of this, you know, I liked it as much as I liked it. Chapter two, I liked it. More than I like the Pet Cemetery remake. I still have not seen that one yet. Uh, I'm good. waiting for it to drop on Hulu. Come on, Paramount, what's uh, up? Uh, yeah, don't need to see it. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's still one of the better horror movies of the year. Liked it more than Annabelle Comes Home. Mm. You know, stuff like that, which was which I just I remember that existed just now. Uh, <laughs> but don't worry, Joel. We get the Conjuring three next year. Oh yeah, the Conjuring, the Devil, Devil maybe do yeah. yeah, which is the <laughs> drop that title. title. But other than uh, that, I'm still yeah. excited for it. Yeah, exactly. I don't like that title. Everybody's the like, Devil oh, it's a great title. I'm like, no. But yeah, this was it was surprising, and mm-hmm. um, you know what I get from this is basically, um, it was a good year for subverting expectations because yep. both of our choices for most surprising did that. Both of our choices for most disappointing didn't do enough of that, right? You know, and uh, that was that was a problem with them, and that's yeah, because uh, you could have easily done a really great Zombieland remake, and uh, yeah, there was so. a lot of stuff that subverted accept- expectations. You know, I knew I was going to like it because of who was in the lead role, but like, I did like like stuff like Joker more mm-hmm. than most people. I don't think it's like a masterpiece like people are claiming, but I still liked it more than most people. Or stuff like. Uh, like dark waters, you know that looked just average. Right. And then boom, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, you know that, that that's why I hate doing the trailer section because it's like I could just crap on a movie for you know five minutes straight, and then once the movie comes out, it's like, well, what was the point of me crapping on it? Because the marking was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, all right, folks, that's pretty much it for episode three hundred five. Um, we reviewed Little Women. Go see it, please. And then also check out Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Dora and the Lost City of Gold, which I think came out the same weekend. I believe it was definitely it was like, both in August for sure. Yeah, I mean both early August. I think that they might have been because I think that there was a weekend with two movies with a really long title, and I think it was those two. But anyway, so that that just ended up being a coincidence. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so that's it. That's our show. Uh, again, if you want to find my writing, I'm at uh, joelonfilm.com. This week, I I had this like review backlog that developed over this past couple of weeks again journeys of a um or diary of a retail worker in december just was exhausted all the time just didn't want to write didn't want to sit down didn't want to build pages which is a whole other thing didn't want to do anything like that but finally this week this christmas week you know the jam cleared i was able to get a lot of them finished and posted and all of that so 
I got a lot of reviews this week. I have uh, Little Women. I have Marriage Story Finally, which I had actually written a review of a while ago but didn't post it to my page. Got that. I got 1917, um, which either we or I will be talking about next week. And then um, uh, Star Wars, finally posted that one a week late. And then Uncut Gems, which we'll be talking about next week. That's our main review, at least. And then uh, Waves, which um, might, come up, might come up in, a, in, an, in an episode we're recording here in a couple hours. Uh, my, <laughs> the, anyway, uh, finally was able to see that. I had a successful... I don't know if y'all remember, but my first one was cut short, <laughs> about an hour into the movie. was finally able to see the movie in whole, write the review, um, all extremely positive reviews, so it's like positivity overload, but uh, you can go and see those now. You can also follow my ramblings on Twitter at RealJoelCopling, that's R-E-E-L-J-O-E-L-C-O-P-L-I-N-G, and uh, follow my daily progress at Letterboxd. If you just search my name, I'll be a lot more, uh, I mean, I'm already pretty active on that, I'll be a lot more proactive with my reviewing in this new year so i'm excited about that and um uh i'll be seeing a lot of movies this coming year a lot of movies guys so get ready and um yeah that's pretty much where i am you can find some of my writing at dallasmoviescreenings.com some recent reviews are up there right now uh, including little women 1917 uncut gems i think waves was put up there and um yeah so you can find all that there chase what about you sir yeah, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Real Chase Lee. If you guys want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's at Real Me and Podcast. And of course, if you're listening to this on Spotify, Castbox, uh, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your listening from on this podcast, please like, follow the feed, do what you got to do, support the channel, and spread it around as well. And let people know this is your favorite movie podcast to listen to. This has been episode 305. Tomorrow, the top 10 films of 2019 will drop. And then on the first will be the most anticipated films of 2020. So you get back-to-back episodes. So watch out. And then we also have a review episode next weekend. So a lot of stuff. A yeah. lot of stuff coming up. So yeah. uh, just uh, hit that download button on your uh, your feed and just keep downloading and uh, burn, burn a hole through your fingers. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this has been 305. 306 will be next. And uh, we'll see you guys then. Peace out. I'm Chase. That is Joel. You guys are awesome. Bye-bye. Bye.